Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
today I'm speaking with John Carter Cash, author of The Cash and Carter Family Cookbook. The son of Johnny Cash and June Carter, he grew up surrounded by the top names in country music. He shares his memories of his parents and their music, why he loves cooking with Mountain Dew, and his recipe for Southern cornbread. Real Southern cornbread is a completely different deal. There's no sugar in it. Uh, I like to, to make mine with a regular Southern recipe in an old iron skillet, but that was my father's favorite food. You know, buttermilk and crumble cornbread and cold buttermilk. Also on today's show, we have a recipe for French walnut tart, a poem from Adam Gopnik, and a tip for dried beans. But first, our very own Catherine Smart is here to report on her trip to Enoteca Maria in Staten Island. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I can't say welcome to Milk Street because you're part of Milk Street. But we let you out, and you went to New York to Staten Island to an Italian restaurant called Enoteca Maria. Why did you go there, and what's unique about it? Well, Chris, Enoteca Maria shouldn't work as a restaurant. It is this tiny restaurant on Staten Island that was dreamed up by an Italian-American guy who was feeling really nostalgic about the food he grew up with and had no restaurant experience. He was a career MTA employee, but this guy, Jody Scaravella, is kind of a magician. He couldn't find the kind of food that he grew up with in Brooklyn. So he decided to open this restaurant and he wanted grandmothers to be the chefs. I had this idea that there was a lot of Italian women out there that had all this knowledge that they could bring to the table. So I put an ad in the, uh, in the American OG and it said, Cercasi Casalinga per Cucinara Regional Tipical, which basically means we're looking for housewives to uh, cook their regional dishes. So the concept is these are people, grandmothers, nanas, who have been around, know how to cook the food the way he remembered it from his childhood. So that's how it started. But it's really entered a kind of second wave. Jody realized that this model of bringing grandmothers into the restaurant to share their culture and share their cuisine could be duplicated. And so he started seeking out women from all over the world. About three years into the project, I noticed that everybody was here celebrating these Italian women. So it just made sense that we should celebrate every culture. So when I went to visit... There were the Italian grandmothers, the Nonas, but there was also Nonas from Sri Lanka, from Poland, from Greece. And so he, every night, there's two kitchens, and there will be an Italian grandmother who's cooking, and there's also a Nona from somewhere else in the world. But these grandmothers aren't flying from Sri Lanka. They live in Staten Island or Brooklyn. I mean, they're, they're locals, yes, right? Yes, these are, these are immigrant it's, locals. Good, just to clear that up. And secondly, how long would they be in a rotation, or is it just a one-off? They are, they tend to stick around. So he usually has them cook once per month because it's a long shift. I mean, these women are older and they're working 14, 16 hour days. So it's usually once a month. Um, And some of them have been cooking there for years. So you obviously went to the restaurant and you, you talked to some of the people, some of the grandmothers. So who are one or two of the grandmothers you talked to? What's, what are their stories? So one of the women I was able to talk to was Plutmista, who's from Krios, Greece. And what was really special is her daughter was there, too. And her daughter's the one that actually introduced her to the restaurant. So after Plutmista's husband passed away, he'd been sick for many years. She'd been taking care of him. She kind of had this void in her life. And so her daughter had heard about the Enoteca. Her daughter's name is Maria. And she contacted Jody and sort of plotted to just bring Plutmista in for her birthday dinner and not tell her this was all a setup to get her to actually cook in the restaurant. So I didn't really tell my mother about 
the intent. I just said to her on her birthday, which was September 4th, I said, would you like to come to, the, to this restaurant that has grandmother's cooking? And we came and we uh, met Jody and his wife and uh, Nona Maria was here, Nona Adelina, and they were cooking. And so my mother just gravitated towards them while they were in the galley kitchen. And I just saw them, they connected without even speaking you know, fluent English, but somehow they connected through their, their love for food, their um, traditions and things like that. So then my mother, I saw her, she was definitely looked like interested. And so Joni took us to the table with his wife and my mother, he said to my mother, just keep it simple, make a menu. And just what do you like to cook? And now she cooks there regularly. And she makes all kinds of delicious food. She makes moussaka and baklava. But what was incredible is she pulled out this little notebook, maybe six inches long. It was in a plastic bag, and it was her grandmother's recipes. And so she's cooking from, you know, recipes that have been passed down for generations. So were there other Nonas you you met when you were there? Yes. So um, Nona Dali is from Sri Lanka. And this is a very different story than Plutmista, who was brought there by her daughter. Dali was enterprising, saw that this restaurant existed, and she showed up basically asking for a job. I moved to Staten Island. I had friends here. So I moved here. And about two years ago, I came here, I spoke to Joe, and he gave me the job right away. So she makes these things called hoppers. The hopper is made out of rice flour. You put rice flour, you put a little yeast, and then you put a little sugar into it, and you mix it with water, and let it rise. Once it rises, for about four or five hours, you have to let it be somewhere in the heat. And then what you do is you put the coconut milk, so then that rises the thing well. And there's a special pan for that, the hopper pan. As you can imagine, producing these crepes is a little bit of a different situation than making, say, a moussaka or a lasagna you can make ahead of time. So she brings in her own special pan and sometimes a little burner and sets up and fires off crepes to order. And and when they're served, how are they served? So there's different ways to serve them, but she likes to serve them with curries, and they're almost used as a utensil to scoop the food into your mouth. You can't use a fork and knife for that. Some, when they come here, they call me and they ask me, how do we eat this? So I say, you break it, dip it in the curry and eat. That's how you eat it. So this place started with Italian food, of course, uh, and you chatted with one of the grandmothers, Maria. And so what does she cook? Uh, Does she have specialties? What was she like? She was wonderful, and she told me many times that her husband was very particular. Particular. He he like like food Italia. He like like spaghetti, me bowl, and he like lasagna a little bit, not too much. My husband was a particular for me. (laughs) And it sounded kind of like he appreciated her food, but here she gets to stretch her legs a little bit and make some of her specialties that maybe she didn't make at home all the time. So she is famous for her lasagna. That is her favorite thing. She says she also makes a really good cavatelli, gnocchi. Uh, But it was really funny to hear her talk about the lasagna because I kept prying her for details as a home cook. Like, tell me your secrets. What am I doing wrong? How can I make it better? And she made it sound so simple. Make me bowl, you know, ricotta, cheese, and gravy. I fill it up. I put it in the oven. Very easy. 20 minutes, 25 minutes, it's good. You have a beautiful dish. So after service, did they have a drink and a cigarette? <laughs> they, hang uh, out, they hang out like everybody else does in the restaurant world. Well, essentially, and it's so funny because 
they're they're sort of mini celebrities and it's such a validating experience for these women. You know, they a lot of times have done this work, hard work, good work, but hard work their whole lives without a whole lot of fanfare. And so they get standing ovations. I think I mentioned some newspapers and television stations have talked to them, but all of them said that at the end of the night, that's their favorite part is when they get to come out and chat with people and, and hear how much they love their food. The people that come over here, they say, thank you, you did a good job. You make a picture with me. Oh, yeah, yeah. In, in Oroteca Maria, all the, the grandmother star. It's incredible. It's magic. It's always the favorite part when the work's over and you get to bask in the glory. Catherine, thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. That was Milk Street's Catherine Smart. Mill Street Radio is available anytime, anywhere as a podcast. Subscribe and you'll get every episode downloaded right to your phone each week. We post new episodes every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Radio Public, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Now it's time to tackle your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? I'm great, Chris, and I think it's time to get to the phones. Open up the lines. Let's go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Karen. Hi, Karen. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Houston, Texas. How can we help you? Well, I'm calling because I was interested in knowing what kind of vegetable I could serve with your Spanish pork stew from a skillet recipe. Can you describe what the dish yeah, is? Yeah, I found that recipe in Madrid a year ago. I was cooking with a chef there. It was interesting because he took fresh pork and he had chorizo, the Spanish chorizo, which is cured, mm-hmm. a lot of smoked paprika, some herbs, etc. He essentially made a stew in a skillet in about half an hour. And I thought that was interesting because you cook the pork so quickly. That was a dish that was really a tapas dish. So it would be served a small plate in a bar or whatever restaurant, and they wouldn't serve it with anything. I probably wouldn't serve vegetables with it. I would serve something simple like rice, or you might do a uh, Italian rice or risotto of some kind might work too. Were there something simple. Tomatoes in the sauce? Yeah, a little tomato reduction in the sauce. Yeah. So if this is going to be an entree, I think I'd want a vegetable. I might serve it like with sautéed spinach or broccoli rub or something. Certainly on starch because it sounds like it was very saucy. Well, you know what I would do? I, I here's what I would do. I would just serve it with a bottle of wine. And then I would have a beautiful salad, a great oh, salad. I thought you were going to say the wine was your fruit. My vegetable? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I would just serve it with a great salad. salad. Salad makes sense. Yeah, and just keep it really simple. I can get on board with that one. Look, we found middle ground. Yeah, we did. There's hope. Anyway, it's a very quick recipe, and it tastes like it's been cooked for hours because a lot of the things in it, he also used some serrano ham, are pre smoked or cured. So like they got the trees on the ham. Yeah. The only thing that was raw was the pork. I think in this case, we ended up with a tenderloin because it cooks very quickly. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and the smoked paprika, the pimentons, also adds flavor. So mm-hmm. it's a great, it's one of my favorite recipes in Milk Street. So, yeah, just a salad or something simple like rice and I think you'd be good. Sautéed spinach. Okay. Did you say something? <laughs> okay. Karen, I hope, <laughs> hopefully that's helpful. Yes, it is. Thanks so much. Okay, yeah, thanks, thanks for, for calling. calling. Thanks. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Peter. Hi, Peter. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, nice place. So I'm calling about, I've always 
enjoyed playing with different food uh, types, uh, fermented food, cured food, made sausage, cured and dried and smoked, and I made cheese. Then my son went away to college, and my wife just went, and so all of a sudden I was doing all this for one person. Everything's going fine. I've got a uh, dehydrator and a uh, vacuum sealer, and I can make individual portions, except for bread. If I go buy a loaf of bread, it's too much for me to eat before it goes bad. So I've heard that restaurants use a process called proofing. So what I'd like to be able to do would be to make three different types of bread in one rainy Sunday, freeze them into small loaves, and the day before, pull them out of the freezer or even rolls, and then cook them the next day. Is that something that would be reasonable? Yeah, you can um, make bread dough, let it rise, punch it down or press it down, shape it, and then wrap it and freeze it. And then when you want, let it thaw it overnight in, in the, the fridge. fridge. Let it rise on the counter until it doubles in size, which will take a while, of course, because it's cold. And then bake it. And they do make, a, you know, you can find those little mini loaf pans. So that would be sort of a fun thing to use. I never spend much time on bread because we have a lot of great bakeries. And baking never seemed to be worth my investment in time and experimentation. So now I think I uh, will need to do that. Well, it sounds like you have fun in the kitchen. Why not try this new thing? Oh, I do. It's I enjoy it, and it's a hobby, and it's also, like I said, controlling what I eat. Well, you're uh, smart about that. You are. That's a good thing to do. I think you'll have fun with this project. Do you have any, I mean, would all breads work about the same, freeze them and then pull them out? Or would you think there'd be certain breads that would be, I mean, ideally, I'd like a nice whole wheat. Yeah, I think they're fine. Um, the only breads you... I don't know, high hydration breads that have very high percentage of water. Like the no-knead bread. Yeah, no-knead bread would be one of those. Ciabatta, some of the Italian breads. But I think, the you know, a typical American bread, loaf bread, rustic bread would be fine. Yeah. Me too, I agree. All right, well, thank you very much. Thanks, okay, Peter. Peter. Yeah, pleasure. Yeah. This is Mill Street Radio. If you want Sarah and I to solve your great kitchen mysteries, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Helen. Hi, Helen. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Orcas Island, Washington. You know, that is the, one of the most beautiful places. It looks like Vermont to me. Mm-hmm. It has farms and rolling hills, and it's. Uh, yes. I'm jealous. Anyway, so how, how can we help you in the kitchen? I am wondering how the baking strips that you soak and put around your pan work. How does it keep a cake level? Well, what it really does is avoids the outside of the cake overcooking because the evaporation cools the outside. So cakes tend to cook from the outside in, and so the metal heats up and the outside of the cake rises and sets before the inside. So it'll give you a more level cake because the outside's not going to rise faster than the center and you'll end up with a more even cake. I've used them, actually. I've never I've, used them. I've never even heard of them. What? Yeah. I'm God. like, oh, my goodness. I got to this ripe old Works age, and I well. don't. It's like a 60s, 70s thing. Yeah, no, I've used them. They were pretty well. Where do you well. buy them? Uh, you can Wilton Cake Decorating, I think, has them. I have or... to help the people like me who just have never heard well, of this. Well, there's a place. It's just open called Amazon. <laughs> you can 
Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Ouch. Wilton cake decorating. I'm going But anyway, there. it evaporates and, and that cools down the outside. That and, makes and, sense. And very often when people have cake problems, the center rises more slowly. The outside rises and sets and the center just never rises right. as high. Right. So anyway, they do work. Yeah. They're pretty cool. Okay. Yep. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate yeah. that. Thanks, our, Helen. Our pleasure. Thank you, Helen. Right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Elizabeth Huber from Houston, Texas. A longtime fan of both of you. And I'm calling about soup. Anytime I see either of you cooking, you have these brilliant broths. And so I was making homemade pho. Wow. Elizabeth, do you want to pause for a second and tell everybody who doesn't know what that is? It's spelled P-H-O. It's the traditional, the basic soup of Vietnam. So anyway, I'm making homemade beef stock. So I've got my beef shank, and I've browned it, and I've got my pot with the knuckles in it that's going to have the gelatin and the shank for the flavor, two pots, so that when I shred it out, liquid goes here, bones go get ready for the dog next door, soup, shredded meat. There's got to be something more brilliant than just putting that beef on a salad or on a sandwich to do with this yummy shank meat. Yeah, I mean, besides fajitas, tacos, pitas, flatbreads, all the usual things. Uh, one thing I do, I often cook sort of the pot au feu. I'll take a, a roast, a shoulder roast, and cook it for three or four hours. And that's a good Sunday thing to do, and then you have leftover meat. Yeah, I make a quick tomato sauce, skillet tomato sauce, you know, and put that meat in towards the end and use that as a sauce on pasta. Yeah, would that be would be high yummy. on my list of things to right. do with it. That's just absolutely delicious, quite different. I like serving that meat. Um, you did mention a salad, but I like to slice onions, cut them in half, pole to pole, obviously peel them, and then slice them thinly and let them sit in vinegar or wine or even hot water for 15 minutes to take the bite out. And I find that really rich meat with those onions. It's just a wonderful combination. And you can make all sorts of salads with that. And as I said, you know, fajitas, tacos, et cetera. I mean, Sarah? I have an idea. Of course, I'm going to take it a European route, which is to turn it into riette. Do you know what riette is? No. It's, you know, in southwest France, they take shredded duck or goose, and they combine it with goose or duck fat and garlic and thyme, and they shred it, and um, they just put it on, like, toasted bread, and it's absolutely delicious. There's another way to think about this. You know, in most places in the world, meats are flavoring. It's not the main thing. And so if you're talking about a rice bowl with a topping, Fried if you're talking rice. about a, a pot of beans, if you're talking about a soup, I often use meat as an element, but not the main element. So you have very rich meat. And so you could add that to almost anything as just another element. Yeah. Or yeah. you know, even a stir-fried rice, you could add meat to just it. Just throw I mean. it in. Elizabeth, thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks, Elizabeth. Yeah. And Sarah and Chris, I've watched both of you since the beginning of you, either of you being on television. Well, thank you. I know how long that is. <laughs> I've adored you that long. I, I think it's pre-Mesozoic at this yes, point. Yes, yes. Thank you, Elizabeth. Okay, bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, my interview with musician John Carter Cash about his new book, The Cash and Carter Family Cookbook. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. 
Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. 
Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. John Carter Cash was born into country music royalty. His parents are June Carter and Johnny Cash. But his roots go deeper. His grandmother, Maybelle Carter, was the queen mother of country music. In 1927, she launched a musical dynasty, the Carter family, when she started recording folk songs with her cousin Sarah and Sarah's husband, A.P. Carter. John Carter, how are you? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. I'm here in Hendersonville, Tennessee at the Cash Cabin Studio. This uh, was uh, just, you know, a log cabin in the woods for years until it was turned into a state-of-the-art recording studio by my father back in the early 1990s. And now at this time, you know, we've recorded thousands of uh, songs here through the years. Uh, but anyway, this is home to me. Yeah. It is. And, um, you know, my, my parents' house is just through the woods. The one, uh, the ruin anyway, the house burned down. Yeah, I'm, you know, I have to say this is a big interview for me because I'm a huge fan of the Carter family music. And I, sh- I actually play cool. some of it and I used to play with a frail banjo player and of course, Johnny Cash. So uh, let, let's start. We'll get to food. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have a bunch of questions for you about music. Mm-hmm. If we could start there. Mm-hmm. So the, the famous Carter songs, Keep on the Sunny Side, uh, you know, yeah. Circle Be Unbroken, et cetera. Are, are those songs that were all part of sort of this this repertoire of music that was uh, common at the time? And, and how, do the, how do those songs relate to this old-timey fiddle songs like Lizard in the Spring or Sugar Hill. Are there two distinctly different <laughs> kinds of songs? You're talking my language now. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, there are. There, the Carter family repertoire, it, most certainly, I mean, the copyright laws changed, and, um, you know, Ralph Peer was looking to take advantage of that and find a lot of songs in the mountains. And um, A.P. Carter had you know, listened to a, a lot of music for a long time and he'd written things, but, uh, you know, he was, he was a novice musician, but his, his wife and her first cousin, Maybell were wonderful, you know, Appalachian players. And he heard that there was going to be a recording in Bristol and they were paying $50 a song. And that was a fortune back then. Um, and so he went and, um, they recorded the first songs there in August of 1927. One of them was, you know, Bury Me Beneath the Willow. Right. But, you know, I mean, your comparison is interesting because there's such a wealth of material. I mean, the Carter family, of, of course, AP did write things, but he was a master editor. And, and they were down to, you know, song has to be two minutes and so many seconds long, and it can't be any longer than that. And, you know, so... Um, so AP would he would figure out how many verses would fit in. I mean, songs like "Sinking in the Lonesome Sea," uh, Norman Blake explained to me about that song, and it's a, you know, it it was. I said, "What is that song?" He said, "Well, it's really the Merry Golden Tree," you know, and it's an old English folk ballad about um, fighting the Turkish revelry. So there was a very you know, it was variations, you know, and then some of those melodies, of course. Um, I mean, I believe if you know if the Carter family hadn't recorded a little darling pal of mine we may have never had um you know this land is your land Hmm. but you know so much of it had to do with leslie riddle who was a guitar player um who a friend of ap carter's it it was a black man and he he taught maybell a lot of guitar taught her how to play blues Hmm. and you know i mean it's like cannonball blues is 
probably written by Leslie Riddle. Really? You know, huh. AP would go into a house and someone that knew a lot of songs and he would sit there and write. He would write out all the lyrics. Hmm. Leslie Riddle would always be with him. Uh, Leslie um, didn't write, but he had a perfect memory. He never forgot a melody. Hmm. So, so those two guys together had a lot to do with the Carter family's repertoire. You know, all that being said, the combination of, you know, the, the blues tones and uh, Maybell listening to the Mexican mariachi band and figuring out You Are My Flower and, and these different things, they combined to make, you know, Appalachian music, the Carter family's music. But, you know, that I mean, country music was... Well, they were listening to it in Seattle with the Carter Family Re- huh. Hour, and, and they were listening to it in New York City, and they were listening to it in Los Angeles, and it's just amazing that there's so many different people that were influenced by the Carter Family's music. I mean, Bill Monroe, Johnny Cash. I absolutely love the Carter Family, and, and I'm, I'm a proponent also for, for you know, some of the, the less sung heroes of country music, and I think Leslie Riddle's one of them. Maybell grew up. I, I love this notion of Poor Valley because the, the the dirt wasn't very good. Yeah. But wasn't there also a, a rich valley nearby? Sort of two valleys, one, one poor, one rich. Is that true or not? Well, maybe not rich people that live there, but the right. north side of the mountain just has has better, better soil right. up around uh, the other side of the mountain. And, you and when you say the mountain, you mean Clinch Mountain? Is that right? Clinch Mountain. Yeah, yeah. but uh, you know, A. P. Carter. He was selling fruit trees, and he went across that mountain. And it's a heck of a mountain to climb. It is. But he climbed that mountain. He went down the other side, and, and you know, this, I don't remember the story exactly, but he heard a voice singing. And hmm. that was a young teenage Sarah Carter on the front porch. Really? Yep. And I that's how they that. met. Huh. And they married early. They married in the teens. And um, AP's younger brother was Ezra. And so AP asked Sarah, hey, do you have any friends or cousins? And yeah, here's Maybell. So that's how my grandfather, Ezra, met Maybell. So let's talk about food for a moment. One of the things you said was interesting in the book, uh, and I never really thought about that. Pigs were slaughtered in the winter because it was cool. The hams cure yeah. during the colder months, and you finally smoke them in the spring, whereas in New England, you'd mm-hmm. slaughter probably in uh, late September yeah. because, because it was obviously hotter down there. So um, mm-hmm. I, I noticed fried bologna shows up in a number of books, mm-hmm. and that is a thing, I guess. That's well, just- yeah, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a common even menu item in some, you know, some restaurants, but, you know, around the South, but my father... I mean, if I had to stay true to what his favorite foods were, and, you know, there's some of my father's favorite foods, there's my mother's favorite foods, there's dishes that both of them created, there's dishes that I've created, there's dishes of all my family, Um, but I'm an active cook, I cook all the time, so, yeah, I'm the short order cook, I'm a a cook in application, I mean, I happen to enjoy it, and it's like therapy to me, but... um, I do it every day of my life, but, but yeah, fried bologna, it's just a food that he loved. If I was going to list his favorite foods and what I remember him cooking for me, he'd make me fried bologna and uh, do it in a skillet and it'd always get almost burned. And then he would fry the eggs in that bologna grease. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that is uh, and salt and pepper on the eggs. And I just remember that. And his toast was, was usually 
he, he put it in the pan and just fried in butter. Huh. But yeah, that's my dad's cooking. Uh, and one of the things you said he liked was uh, cornbread crumbled up in uh, buttermilk, right? Buttermilk, yeah. That's probably his favorite food. And you know, I mean, southern cornbread, I, I mean, I think there's good cornbread in the rest of North America. Some of it's, you know, more like, almost like more like a cake. It's just it's sweeter. Sweet. It's and, terrible. Um, yeah, that's no good. Real southern cornbread is a completely different deal. And um, there's no sugar in it. Uh, I like to to make mine with a regular Southern recipe in an old iron skillet, but right. I, 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 I add cheese and onions and maybe even a little salsa to mine just to give it a bite or jalapenos. But there's no two batches that are the same, you know, exactly. And that people, you know, say, how do you do your cornbread recipe? And it's like, uh, just start cooking. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, but that was my father's favorite food. So another another thing I know that sometimes uh, sodas make it into recipes. You had a recipe for Aunt Fern's apple dew cobbler, uh, calls for Mountain Dew or Mellow Yellow. And uh, yeah. we were working on a recipe recently. I think it was a, uh, a Filipino recipe that also used soda, and it was actually really good. So was that a common thing, mm-hmm. using Mountain Dew or something in cooking? It's the sugar, you know, and the flavors of, you know, the syrup. And, and you know— um, the apple dew is, I just love it. And it's a very simple thing to make, you know. It just reminds me of when I was a boy. And um, I also use cola in my uh, um, my pork shoulder roast. For brining? Yeah. For the brine, yeah. Yeah. It's a long process, but it's a favorite around my household. Yeah, so, some Just not to get too personal, but you mentioned your dad uh, had a brother, Jack, who died when he was young. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And and you said he was wanted to be a preacher and and uh, mm-hmm. you still have still have his Bible. Yeah, Jack was he was a kind guy. You know he was Dad's best friend. He really was, and, and he was set on becoming a pastor because I mean it just had a passion for studying the Bible, and was a was was a was a good good he was a good young man, and uh, you know it's such a tragedy. So what was it like for you growing up around all that music? Was that, I mean, maybe since people were professional musicians, they just didn't want to talk or play music on their downtime? Or or was was music still around all the time for you? My parents, you know, I mean, my father would bolt into song at any given moment when he was driving or he was on a golf cart or he was just walking down the street. But they they weren't like, let's get out the guitars and play some music around the house. Like when they'd have a party, they'd have what they call a guitar pull. And that's when, you know, everybody sings a song and they pass it around, one of their mm-hmm. new songs perhaps. And so dad had some very famous gatherings, you know, I know when, like especially when he was doing the Johnny Cash show because he, you know, they practiced through the week. It was a live television show. And so they practiced through the week and then he'd have guests over. Uh, I know that Dad told me anyway that Graham Nash debuted Marrakesh Express in his uh, living room. Really? Huh. Yeah, and that um, Bob Dylan debuted uh, "Lay Lady Lay" <laughs> when he was recording Nashville Skyline in you know in his in his living room. James Taylor was there. Joni Mitchell was there, and so he they would have these gatherings, and then later on through the years, you know. Uh, hmm. If it was family or friends or whatnot, everybody would stand around and play guitar. But I, my dad and mother would never do a sound check. 
uh, before a show. You know, they never really? go check the microphones before they performed. They like to fish and they like the outdoors and, you know, they like their time off and right. they liked movies. I mean, music was what they were, but they had a lot of heart for a lot of different things. Uh, you've had just an amazing life, uh, obviously. But is, is there something, you know, you cherish the most from all this? Hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, the times that stick out the most with my mother and my father are the times that we spent, like, doing out, outdoor adventures things together. And, and there was a trip that we went on. It was a five-day float trip down a river in Alaska, and I was 13 years old. And uh, my father was in a sort of a, well, he'd he was he he'd been struggling with addiction and uh, pain pill addiction, and he was in sort of, sort of a hard time in some ways, but, but he was straight on that trip. And it was, yeah, that really, really sticks in my mind as being something that was a, a grand adventure. You know, I mean, uh, we, we had a guide and two rafts. And so I was in the one raft with the guide and my mother and dad rode all the gear and I fished the whole time fast-moving, cold, cold river, uh, the Chick-Chick Lake system north of Dillingham, Alaska. And I fell in that river, and uh, the guide jumped in. His name was Tim. Pulled me out and saved my life. Mm. So still grateful to Tim for that. But I, uh, I guess so. Yeah, Wait, was it, was yeah. that because you, you didn't have a lot of time alone with your parents, with mm. a lot of all other people but we around? Did. We did. We had time alone, but we had a lot of time that there were a lot of people around, but I mean, I'd say, I mean, we go to Jamaica for two weeks or we'd go on a trip like that. We'd go to Canada fishing. And so we spent a lot of time alone together on the tour bus and we had a lot of talking and we didn't write that much music together. Dad and I didn't, we maybe four songs, five songs, but we were, we were creative together and he believed in my guitar playing when I, you know, I still don't necessarily hire myself much in the recording studio. But, uh, but anyway, he, you know, he believed in me. And, um, so yeah, we, we spent time together. We did, and it wasn't always perfect, but it was, there was always a lot of love. And so that's what sticks. That's what the memory is. I'm sitting here in the studio right now, looking at the last portrait that was ever taken of my father, taken by Marty Stewart, uh, just days before dad, you know, moved on. And anyway, he was a gentle, loving man, and there's a separation between Johnny Cash, the entertainer, and and my father, right. and there always will be. There was to him too, and the beautiful things that matter, uh, I, I hold in my heart. John Carter, it's been uh, it's really been a pleasure chatting with you, and uh, I w I wish we had more time to talk about that music. But, yeah, uh, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. That was John Carter Cash. His new book is entitled The Cash and Carter Family Cookbook, Recipes and Recollections from Johnny and June's Table. A.P. Carter traveled Appalachia to record country music, and as I learned in the interview, he was often accompanied by Leslie Riddle, an African-American musician who was referred to as the human tape recorder. A.P. wrote down the lyrics, and Leslie remembered the tune. These songs are still being recorded today. Wildwood Flower, Can the Circle Be Unbroken, and Keep on the Sunny Side. The lyrics were often sad, but they always offered a better future. Radio was the social media of the 20s and 30s. And America gathered around to listen to songs of hope 
not anger. Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. It will help us every day. It will brighten all the way. If we keep on the sunny side of life. Right now, I'm heading over to the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, French Walnut Tart. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, pecan pie, I've always said Americans understand pies and the French do tarts. And I think most of the time, American pies are better. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very red, white, and blue about this. But once in a while, the French have a good notion, and they do a walnut tart instead of a pecan pie. So let's talk about that. Sure, it's from the Dordogne region of France, which is in southwestern France. Uh, it's an area where they've been harvesting and cooking with walnuts for about 17,000 years. So How they, convenient. <laughs> they know a lot about walnuts <laughs> there, uh, which is why this tart is so good. It's because they really highlight the walnuts. You can actually taste the nuts in this. It's not overpowered with a sugary custard. It's, you can really taste the nuts. And this is why Caesar invaded France, to get the walnuts? <laughs> exactly. Now we know. Okay. So to make it, we start with tart shell. It's a really simple pat-in-the-pan tart dough. Uh, it's made in the food processor. To highlight that nuttiness, we subbed out a little bit of the all-purpose flour and added whole wheat flour, so that really kind of enhanced that flavor. Uh, and the tart shell just gets patted into the pan, pre-baked. There's an egg yolk in the dough, uh, which gives it a little bit of structure so you don't have to use pie weights. So it's not going to shrink when you pre-bake it because it's got the fat in it. Exactly. I like that. So what about the filling itself? Other than walnuts, what else is in there? So we make a really simple caramel with sugar, water, and we add a little bit of honey. So that's got a different sweetness, a different flavor to it. Um, that gets cooked together to about amber color. And then to that, we add butter, uh, creme fraiche, and that's going to give a little bit of a richness, but a kind of more acidic richness than butter would. Um, and then we add a little bit of apple cider vinegar. Oh, wait a minute. I, I was with you with the creme fraiche because you wanted to trick up sour cream, right? Right. So w why the vinegar? Just to cut the sweetness? Exactly. So it just added a little bit of tartness, brightens it up a little bit, kind of balances some of that sweetness. You don't taste it at all in the finished tart. It's just a background flavor that you kind of pick up. And so what about texture? Is this mostly nuts? Is this mostly custard? Is it in between? So I would say it's mostly nuts. There's two and a half cups of walnuts in here, toasted, chopped walnuts. Uh, it's mixed with two egg yolks, and then you bake that all together. A little sprinkle of flaky sea salt at the end uh, kind of enhances that salty, savory, sweet thing that we were going for here with this tart, not just cloyingly sweet. Adds a lot of balance. It's kind of a little chefy thing to do at the end. Do you put your hand way above the tart and sprinkle it? Absolutely. Like they do on all those yeah, TV shows? Yeah, Salt Bay. Okay. So uh, instead of pecan pie, we suggest a French walnut tart. Uh, not quite as sweet, uh, very walnutty, and very franche. Thank you. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for French walnut tart at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik waxes poetic about the one thing we all have in common, food. We'll be right back.
You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe Salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. It's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. If you're like me, you love dried beans, but you have a hard time remembering to soak them overnight before cooking. So here's a tip. 
As soon as you bring beans home from the market, soak them for 12 to 24 hours in two quarts water seasoned with two tablespoons kosher salt. We use diamond crystal. Drain, then transfer to a zip close bag and store in the freezer for future use. By the way, the frozen beans can go right from the freezer into your pot with no ill effect. And we need to give credit to cookbook author Joan Nathan. She gave us that tip from one of her cookbooks. For more culinary inspiration, please go to 177milkstreet.com. Up next, Adam Gopnik, who's never afraid to get philosophical about food. Adam, how are you? I am well, Christopher. How are you? I'm well, and I'm I'm ready. Uh, I'm ready for a little philosophy lesson. Are you ready for some poetry? Are you ready for some love poetry, <laughs> Chris? Are you prepared <laughs> no, for me having I written a love so. lyric to you? <laughs> no, but I'll take it. I'll take it wherever it comes from. Well, uh, uh, as sometimes happens to poets, you remember the. Uh, Coleridge got the entire text of Kublai Khan, uh, just entered his head while he was sleeping one day until he was interrupted by a person from Porlock, as he memorably wrote. I, the other day, a few lines of verse poured into my head with you very much in mind because I was thinking about one of our favorite shared subjects, which is world cuisine. I know it's one of the ones in which you have now entered a, a whole kind of adventure what um, actors and directors like to call a journey. I'm sure you've always noticed that when actors and directors are receiving awards, they always say, this was a remarkable journey, meaning this was a good film that I made. (laughs) Well, I know that you have been on a global journey, and so have I. We both have the sense that the Northern European cooking on which we were raised and which was the first thing we struggled to master is outdated or out of touch, and we are going ever farther you literally, me, um, a secondhand through reading, into the cuisine of the world. And yet, here's the thing that strikes me always about the cuisine of the world. It's that wherever we go and however exotic our tastes become and however uh, global our culinary techniques become, we always return to the same meal. Have you noticed this? We always return to a neutral starch and a pungent protein. Wherever we go, in the world. We end up with a neutral starch beneath and a pungent protein on top. It could be the curry on top of the rice, or it could be the tagine on top of the couscous, or it could be the tomato sauce and sausage on top of the plain pizza dough. But that is the meal, or the spicy ants on cassava root, that is the meal that the overwhelming majority of human beings sit down to eat. Uh, We eat that neutral starch and pungent protein, and we change the nature of those two things, but that, it seems, is the universal meal, the one that people love to eat. And into my ears, Christopher, leapt the following lyric. (laughs) As you know, I am, in addition to the other things I do, I am a lyricist. I write musical theater. But here was the lyric that leapt into my mind when I was thinking about the one global shared meal of all mankind. The starch is plain, the protein pungent. Above the base, a spicy ungent of shrimp or chicken, pork or ants. One flat, one sharp, the daily dance. Below tagine, you find the couscous. The desert's fire becomes subfucus, a word that means, you see, just twilight. In lexicons unexed, a highlight. The rice is white, if not the curry. The slump has bite, if not the slurry. For one meal served to every nation, though none thinks it's mere imitation. A neutral base, a pungent topping. I'm off to eat. My song is stopping. 
That's actually really good. Well, thank you. But truly, that leapt into my mind between 23rd Street and 53rd Street on the West Side subway the other day. And I thought, I must share this with Chris. And I do think it is true that one of the most beautiful things to think about about cooking is the way that with all of the endless lexical variations that we uh, undergo, and I hope you noticed, by the way, that I put in two of my very favorite and recently acquired cooking words, and they are slump and slurry. Uh, it wasn't only this summer that I realized that between the cobbler and the crisp lay the slump, the fruit slump. <laughs> yes. And only this summer that I realized <laughs> that between rue and um, cornstarch lay the slurry. Uh, so yes. I was delighted to be able to use slump and slurry, my two favorite recent cooking words. But I do think it's true that with all of those extraordinary lexical variants, there really is a kind of universal grammar of human taste, and that is neutrality topped by something spicy. Well, that that's quite true. It's, it's probably not true, though, to go back to the beginning uh, of Northern European cooking because there was nothing spicy after medieval times. Spices disappeared, and you got kind of got bland on bland, right? I mean, I mean ch- chicken pot pie is... <laughs> You know, it's sort of like chicken on bland slurry, right? <laughs> well, I, I would describe it slightly differently. I think what you got, in all seriousness, was butter on bland or rich yes, on bland. That's a good point. And that became the basic yes. formula of French cooking for two magnificent centuries was butter on bland, right? You yeah. had a white fish under a butter sauce. And we all thought that was the most delicious thing we'd ever tasted. And the closest thing we came to the tang of spice was a squeeze of lemon. And that was the standard. But I do think it was true that butter on bland Mm. was the formula of Northern European cooking for a very long time. And what's astonishing, Chris, is that we all believed in it, that it seemed satisfying not just to Northern Europeans, for whom it was a folk cuisine, but to those of us who pretended to have um, bigger eyes and larger appetites. Um, uh, Larger appetites, I mean, for sensation. And I think it's... But when we escape from the narrow ghetto of Northern European taste and we do confront the world's cuisine. In that case, I do think it's quite stunning as I turn the pages of your cookbooks or the ones I like, that invariably that's basically what we're preparing is a neutral starch and a pungent protein. Yeah, which which of course is about opposition and distancing two very different things and bringing them together. I think that's, it's zero and one, it's black and white, it's opposition, it's confrontation between ingredients, which somehow meld themselves together in the final dish. But that's that the essence of differentiation is so different than Northern European cooking, right? Yes, but I, you know, and I think if I may take one final metaphysical leap, falling flat on my face, no doubt, as I do, or falling out onto the subway tracks from the <laughs> subway train, um, that's the basic principle of what makes any art interesting. It's the principle of fruitful contradiction. Right. That's what makes a chord in jazz um, striking, is that it combines sweet sounds and flat sounds, a minor ninth chord or a flattened fifth chord. That's what makes them exciting, is that they have a contradiction between tension and release, and that's even true of the larger structure of music. It's true of painting. When we love someone like Matisse, it's not because we love just the pretty colors. We love the pretty colors in lots of worse painters. It's because we love the contradiction between the rough-edged, wiry drawing and the, the beautiful, sophisticated color. So I think that one of our core experiences of art is exactly our experience of the contradiction on the daily planetary dish. It took me three sentences, and it took you two words to say the same thing. You said fruitful contradiction, which 
means you're the lyricist around here, and I'm just a hack. So once again, <laughs> pr- proving that you get the last word. Adam, thank you so much. The theory of fruitful contradiction in how the world eats. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you, Chris. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. As a writer, Adam Gopnik sees the world differently than most of us because that's what he does. He observes life with a critical, entertaining, and often understanding eye. Good writers can find enlightenment anywhere. You know, Adam and I once had a grilled cheese sandwich and then rice pudding at a local New York diner near his apartment. And years later, he spun that encounter into an observation about the nature of the human condition. And there you have it. A good writer can find truth even in a bowl of rice pudding. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can always download Mill Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, or Spotify. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show. That way you'll get every episode downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. You can find our week's recipe, watch the new season of our TV show, subscribe to our magazine, or order our new cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzaba. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak, and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugertz. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis, and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tubob Crew. Additional music by George Brennell Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.